The great day of the Lord is near, and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. The day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now please turn to Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, where we will be hearing from verses 8 till 13. Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. You're going to verse 13. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the Lord, the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. We have all of us, after hearing that, uh, uh, this hopefully will not open up too many old wounds, uh, but we have all of us lived through a time of plague. We all remember the beginning stages of the coronavirus epidemic, uh, how it changed our lives overnight, and a fear that was stirred up in millions, if not billions, in this microscopic enemy as it infected and spread from mere thousands to quickly millions and billions, it seemed. Governments around the world, you'll remember, variously reacted to this uh, as they thought, if we're being generous, that this plague was a very serious, life-threatening disease. Places like Sweden were very open in the way that they lived, and they tried to protect the elderly, while places like New Zealand and China were very closed, and they tried to, to destroy that, that virus as best they could for months and years of lockdowns. But why do they do these things? Well, besides the sinful desire for totalitarian control, these measures originated first in their belief concerning the seriousness of the disease. And second, because of that, their hate of those serious consequences, death. That they understood the seriousness of the disease and the consequences that came from it. Something this serious in their mind needed these types of measures, needed to be utterly eradicated. And we ought to be so far removed from this plague, so they thought, that we keep distance even from those who might have it. 
The consistent and forceful push for the COVID vaccine and even for vaccine passports show this belief of the serious consequences of that virus. And here is a rule which all follow, that the consequences, the serious consequences of those things direct our actions. How serious we think the consequences of something is how serious our actions against it will be. So why open this old wound again? Because a plague is still over us. And I, I don't mean COVID. That is now a, a, an endemic, no longer a pandemic. It may still be with us to the very day of judgment. But there is a greater plague that still is with us, and that's sin itself, which brings about the consequent of death. COVID is not a symptom of governmental overreach or global interconnectedness. It is a symptom of sin itself and this polluted world. And for that reason, we might actually understand the more totalitarian government, totalitarian government's desire to have a world that is new, a new world order where there are no viruses, no pain, no pollution, no poverty, and other consequences of sin that can be dealt with, they say, through these totalitarian governments. Such a serious disease, even the human condition itself, calls for equally serious measures against it. But as long as governments and individuals cozy up to ingest and love their sin, the greatest disease of all, nothing will change. The seriousness of the disease calls for just a serious measure against it. There remains in our midst that sin. We see how God treats this sin, this pandemic, this endemic of sin in our text. How does he treat it? How serious does he think sin is? God hates sin, and we see it in his judgment, because God understands the nature of sin so well. Like those governments who mistakenly thought COVID was the end of the world, who thought they knew the nature of, of COVID, God actually knows the nature of sin, and nothing less than a complete and utter annihilation of sin will do. Praise the Lord as an effective healing balm. He will bring this judgment upon the world. Beloved, we ought to look at sin square in the face and see not only its temporal consequences, as if it were just some disease like COVID, but hell itself will be brought upon it. It's burning eternal consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death and judgment. God has not forgotten the vile pollution that is sin, and he has not forgotten his plan, as it's revealed here in 2 Peter 3 so well, for a new and a better world where there is no sin, where righteousness dwells. Peter shows God's expansive plan here in 2 Peter 3, although we will focus on verses 8 through 13 today. And that is getting us to the first section, the reason for God's judgment. The reason for God's judgment is sin. There is nothing wrong with creation by itself. He said creation is very good. This text is first and foremost about God's burning hatred in the judgment against sin. He compares it here with the waters of the flood, which you'll remember, overwhelmed the whole world except for the people in the ark. He earlier used the flood as proof that the Lord has destroyed the world, and he will do it again. 
the, the people that we live around even now scoff at these things, as Second Peter is really a book about scoffers and how they hate the Christian message, they scoff that the Lord will destroy the earth. Well, here's the proof that he will. He's already done it once. He'll do it again. He did it with the flood. The difference, however, between these two destructive world-scale events, extinction events, is that the ark here in this extinction event is far bigger than the first. The way of destruction is now fire as well, and that fire will be the final destruction. It will be a new world, but there will be no more sin after, unlike the flood that still had some sin even afterwards. Of this judgment, Peter says here in our text, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And continuing to verse 12, Waiting for and hastening the coming of the Lord, the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Let's linger on this image for a moment, on the flames of his fire. Even the heavens, that is, the, the planets, the moons, and the planets and the entire solar system and the cosmos itself, the universe will be set on fire on that day of the Lord. Unlike the atheist, I might remind you, who say that this, the universe will die in utter heat death, that is, utter cold. No, it will be the exact opposite. The activity of God will be completely present and understandable to us. It may come like a thief, but we know it's coming and we will know when it is here. God says this in verse 12, that the heat will be so intense that it will reach everything and melt everything so that seemingly all will be destroyed. If we do not understand the reasoning behind this judgment, the heinousness of sin and the right action that must come from the heinousness of sin, then we do not understand his judgments We do not understand what sin is, the hatefulness it is. This must come, and we rejoice that it comes. Although patient toward us sinners, as we see in this passage, in these last days, to bring in a multitude, God's will is not to let the sin, this plague of sin, continue forever. As many humans desire that it will And I hope that we do not desire that our sin will continue in our lives, brothers and sisters. Although I'm sure it happens from time to time, God does not desire it. Sin is misery. No, like a good physician, God's will is to destroy the malady itself. God does not stop in suppressing the symptoms of sin. Our sin and our misery, he does not simply suppress misery. He destroys the very root of misery, which is sin itself, just as he does in the Old Testament. Anything that even was touched by something that was unclean must be destroyed in the Old Testament because it is in his presence. Anything in his presence with even an inkling of sin must be destroyed. No no mere man can eradicate sin. God must do this. In a kingdom, as we see in verse 13, where righteousness dwells, must kill sin. Sin's death is the way of righteousness. As we will go to the second section, the goal of God's justice. Death, as we we consider these these words, a new world, a new earth, a new heaven, 
we consider it, how do we get here? <clears throat> the goal of God's justice, which is uh, a new world, death to the way of righteousness. Not only is death the way of righteousness for Christians, it is the way of righteousness for all the earth. Notice this. This is a plan that is not just for individuals, not just for you and me as people, as humans, but for the entire world. It stretches to the entire world, to the, the most distant moon and the most distant star. Isn't it interesting that Paul, when he says in Romans 8, uh, and uh, bear with me here for a little bit of, of Paul. Uh, I just enjoy what he has to say here so much. It helps us understand what's going on here. Romans 8, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, that future glory. But does, does he then go and speak to individuals after he speaks about this glory that is to come? No, he goes on to creation. See what he says next. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God will not allow one inch of his realm, not uh, allow one inch of this world, of creation itself, all creation, to be outside of his glory, to be outside of his plan. He will redeem it. He will not allow creation to remain in this hateful state of groaning under sin and futility. Although Christians ought to always live in the knowledge of the final judgment, it's far more than just merely this. When the tongues of flame descended upon the church at Pentecost, the church was purified in that fire of judgment. We on this earth are the first fruits of that great new creation. When the tongues of flame descended upon the church of Pentecost, the church was purified with the fire that will stretch from God's mouth to the entire cosmos on the day of judgment. The judgment fire, because of Christ's work, has descended already on the church. On the church, that Peter says, all these things being destroyed... This is verse 11. What sort of people should you be in the lives of holiness and godliness on this earth? When Isaiah had a coal from the altar taken and placed upon his lips, he was purified for the work of the flame with the flames of the end times before the time for his work. So the church has, before the time of judgment, been, as John the Baptist says, baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That end time, judgment, fire. So Peter and Paul see the fire which is to come and cleanse the whole world and the whole universe. That cleansing fire, we Christians now have already been baptized into that fire. We have been cleansed. We are the people of fire. And although we are not worthy of anything but being burned up in that fire of God's presence, what does God promise us? But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you like the flood. And when you walk through the fire, they shall not consume you. The fires, the flames shall not consume you, is Isaiah 43. Yes, Christian, 
You will not be consumed because Christ is with you. Just as it it says here in Isaiah 43, Christ already took that judgment fire. The judgment fire of God, the melting, burning anger of God against sin on the cross. Jesus was the first fruits of that judgment that God will do. We do not know when, but soon. As he says, Peter says, or rather Paul says in Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's something that seems very reminiscent of our own passage. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Assurance not only of salvation, but of the judgment that is coming. Why are the times of ignorance past and overlooked now? Because God has shown that day of judgment on the cross. And he will show shown the way of salvation, the coming judgment, fires through resurrection. That is, through Christ Jesus and his righteousness. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus and the firstfruits of the dead is as the firstfruits of the dead. His death is a sign of the coming resurrection and the judgment which will come upon all. Do you begin to see in the redemption of Christ the cosmic significance, the cosmic universal plan of God and scale of God's redemption in Christ? It is upon this subject that we hear God glorified in Ephesians 1, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ things in heaven and things on earth, as we see here in our text. Unite all things in Christ. Let's not over-individualize salvation in God's plan, brothers and sisters. He loves us, and he loves individuals, and he saves individuals, but his plan is to eradicate sin. Wherever it lies, nothing else will do for God but complete, entire, and utter decimation of his enemies, of sin and of death, for a kingdom of righteousness is his goal. Do we have this outlook in our own lives, brothers and sisters? Do we desire the destruction of sin just like God does? Do we hunger and thirst after righteousness, after this kingdom of righteousness? Are we poor in spirit, humble and contrite, mourning over our sin and looking to him alone who can give us that restoration and gives us that salvation, even of the cosmos, the cosmic kingdom of righteousness. Do we have this outlook? But is that kingdom of righteousness only future? As we see in this text, it says it is a coming kingdom of righteousness. We are waiters until that day comes. But is it only future? He does say that it will come like a thief in the night. And also, turn with me to 1 Peter 4, verse 17, where, uh, Lord willing, maybe one day we will go. Uh, last time I was here, I was in 1 Peter, and I've just simply continued on. But, as it is, uh, 1 Peter four seventeen. Yet, if anyone suffer, or rather, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. What does that mean? What does that mean? 
It means that we are being purified even now for that day. As we are part of that kingdom, that new kingdom in Christ, we are being purified by the judgment fires until that day because we are part of God's new creation even now. That is a good thing for us, brothers and sisters. We must always remember that the opposite of sin is righteousness. If we are citizens of a different world, by very nature different, and this is, and we can see in 2 Peter 2, we are no longer those people who desire the pods or desire to wallow in the mire like the sound does. We are those people who desire righteousness because we have been changed. If we are citizens of a different world by nature, then we ought to understand sin and hate it for what it is. Christians live in the lie of the destruction of all things. Christians live in the lie of the destruction of all things because we live in God's presence. God's presence is righteousness. God himself is righteous, and we ought to remember that righteousness is not some Greek or Roman virtue detached from God, but it is a relational category. That is, God is righteous. What he says is right. And when we are in his presence, he brings us to more and more righteousness. What he says is righteous is righteous. And on that great day, we will be righteous in his sight. That is what it means to be righteous. Not simply by our own categories, but righteous in his sight. Do you really desire that kingdom of righteousness and God to be over us in that way? Or do we love our sin too much? We are no longer of this world, brothers and sisters. In this new birth, we are part of a future world. It is not as if that means we have a ticket for a future train which will take us to the undying lands. No, Scripture has a much more immediate idea of what this means. We are presently seated, says Colossians, in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. We, as a new creation, are part of the original creation that was meant to be. This was always the case, brothers and sisters, that there would be a kingdom of righteousness. That is why earlier on we sang Psalm 24. Psalm 24 says, Who will ascend the mount of the Lord? It is the righteous one who will do this. Even in the garden, this was the case, that we would go closer and closer into God's presence. And this kingdom of righteousness, he did not give up on. This plan for the fullness of time was only to be through Christ Jesus. And see, we, we see in this text as well that he desires repentance for all people. Our repentance is the way into this kingdom of righteousness. This kingdom of righteousness, I might tell you as well, is not merely some supernatural world. What do I mean by that? It is supernatural in that we do not know what we will be like and it will be beyond our current comprehension and glory, but its essence is not immaterial. It is a real world. That is, everything that the garden was meant to be, our glorious country will be only far better. Anything that this world was meant to be, but far better. This country that we are going to will not be the garden. It will be far better, but it is what the garden was pointing to all along, a kingdom of righteousness and where, where the Lord dwells. That is where we are going. So brothers and sisters, have you died with Christ to everything in this world? 
died to self and to our opinions, died in the death of Christ, in the day of the Lord's judgment upon Christ on the cross, which was placed upon him instead of us and resurrected to a new world. Or are you still in this earth and desire this earth? Or do you desire the kingdom of righteousness? He died that the fires of judgment, through those fires of judgment, we might live. So brothers and sisters, let us have faith in Christ and let us hasten that day by doing the things which are right and praying for that day to come as we will see our great King. Let us go to our great King of righteousness and prayer. Oh Lord, who are we even to call upon you? Lord, there are so many sins that cling so closely to us. We thank you, Lord, that as we have been changed in our very nature, those sins no longer define us, but we are with you in the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, we are with you at the right hand of the Father, seated in heaven with Christ. We thank you, Lord, that Christ has done so much for us. We could not endure your righteous judgment, and you brought your Son that we might come to that great country that you designed for us even from the very beginning. Lord, you in your glory found a way. You in your glory knew the way. Lord, we praise you, our great God and King, but we also ask that we would not cling so closely to this world and that we would look to you for our blessings and look to the new heavens and the new earth for blessings instead of us trying to create earthly blessings. Make us to depend upon you and to go to you in your presence that we might know and love righteousness and hate sin. Teach us to understand why you judge sin in such a manner that it might all be destroyed and made into a new kingdom. Lord, as you have brought death upon your Son and given us newness of life, and as you will bring death to this cosmos and newness of life, we pray that as we are the first fruits of those things underneath Christ Jesus, that we would show the world what this new world will be like Lord, that as this is a time of opportunity, that we would give them the righteousness of Christ, the love of Christ, that they would repent as you desire. Lord, we love you and praise you. Bring this day, we pray, soon that we might see you face to face. We ask all this and pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.